Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we discuss what life is really like for those unfortunate enough to live under communist or socialist governments. Recording from the suburbs of Wichita, Kansas, this is Eric Seligman, your host, along with co-host Manuel Castaneda in Oregon. Today we're going to be discussing a darkly hilarious memoir by a former Soviet doctor, Vladimir Tsitsis, who practiced medicine in a small Moldovan town in the 1960s. The memoir is titled Communist Days and describes his experiences in his first job after graduating from medical school as a pediatrician at a hospital in a small farming town called Gradieshti. It begins with a discussion of his days in medical school. It's great that his schooling is completely free, aside from the mandatory summers spent at forced labor harvesting crops in the country, but he is a bit bothered when he notices that certain of his classmates aren't quite held up to the same standard as he is. I cross paths again with the Komsomol leader, Sarakutsa. It seems the army veteran was struggling in chemistry, and so the professor asked me to tutor him. One day, well into the course, I was explaining the concept of valence. Looking very puzzled, my pupil lit a cigarette and casually inquired through the cloud of smoke, but what is an atom? Petra Sarakutsa later went on to become an instructor in the Department of Biochemistry there, another bright communist future guaranteed. I remember my classmate Vitaly Estradi, a nice-looking fellow with a childish face, who simply could not remember the cornucopia of items in the course on anatomy. Due to his high-level connections, he was not expelled. Of course, you guessed it, after graduation, Vitaly became a teacher in the Department of Anatomy and later even went on to chair the department at another medical school. Vitaly's story is not unique. I would come to discover that such shameless nepotism in the medical profession was typical of the entire country, undermining the professional capabilities of generations of Soviet doctors. Privileged students with minimal education and training invariably were permitted to finish medical school and become physicians to whom patients entrusted their lives. Cesis is sent to the small farming town of Gradieshti, where he's granted the amazing privilege of a small apartment to himself. Electric service is unreliable, and he has to use an outhouse in the yard due to the apartment's lack of a sewer system, but it's still a pretty nice arrangement by local standards. He also comments on how he had to save up newspapers, since toilet paper there, and in most of the Soviet Union for non-party elites, was an unheard-of luxury. This, however, creates another potential hazard, as someone caught wiping oneself with the wrong newspaper page, say one that contained the picture of a Communist Party leader, could find themselves denounced and arrested. Cesar's comments on the wide-ranging effects of these issues. Gradieshti's challenges with sanitation were a microcosm of a widespread, unending Soviet problem a high level of gastrointestinal infections in town and country. Like millions of my compatriots, I grew up in a medium-sized city, in a little house with a backyard outhouse and without a sewer line, shower, bath, or hot water. With all that, my family was very lucky in comparison to people in rural areas, many of whom confronted worse sanitary conditions. Even in the large cities, finding a toilet, even the most primitive and foul-smelling, was a difficult task. Cesis settles into his job at the hospital, happy to see that his boss is a somewhat competent physician and begins treating the local population. The staff do their best to keep the hospital running, but certain nationwide problems are hopeless to fight against. One is the constant theft of hospital supplies by the local workers. The theft of public property is very simple to perform. Before the hospital stamps each new piece of bedding with its blurred rusty hospital seal, the bedding somehow quietly slips away, for a modest fee, mind you, to employees and their acquaintances. On paper, the old items miraculously become the new items. One consequence of such ubiquitous stealing is that all of the hospital's bedding is universally dirty gray, a fine match for the colorless village. Bedding is only really and truly discarded after countless washes in the hospital laundry, 
once it completes a long, thinning, and fragmenting journey into shapeless rags. The level of skills of the other doctors varies, of course. Cesis is shocked when he sees a fellow doctor bragging that his patient is getting better because he's ordered nearly every available antibiotic for him. The colleague gets offended when Cesis tries to bring up the fact that there may be dangers to this strategy. Overall, he has some harsh words for the overall system, which he calls a grandiose global show for all those who preferred wishful thinking to reality. Typical hospital rooms house between 8 and 16 patients. In rural Gradieshti Hospital, only four inside toilets serve patients in 50 beds. Lacking hot water, showers, or baths in the main building, our patients were unable to take appropriate care of their personal hygiene and resorted to wiping themselves with wet towels. One of the biggest difficulties for me was enduring the smelly and stale odors from dozens of unwashed bodies. The needles were reused and were never sharp or small enough. All syringes were made from glass and were reused until they broke. Though it was common knowledge how blood-borne infections were transmitted, none of our medical instruments were disposable. The first time I encountered the word disposable, I didn't know what it meant even after consulting an English to Russian dictionary. When a coworker told me that syringes and needles, so precious in my understanding, were intended only for one-time use, I thought he was joking. I simply had no idea that disposable medical instruments had been a mandatory norm in the West for over a quarter century. Another factor that continually affected our ability to treat patients was poor lighting due to the electrical grid's low voltage. When the electric lights dimmed or went out, we treated and operated by kerosene lamps and sometimes even by handheld flashlights. To compensate for these issues, CSIS's superiors make sure that any formal reports to their higher-ups contain manufactured data indicating widespread success in a healthy community, regardless of the actual reality. He doesn't believe anyone on the Central Party Committee knows what the actual truth is most of the time, as anyone who revealed it to them would be sacrificing their careers or worse. Cesis attempts to fill out some forms accurately and gets reprimanded by his boss. He's also surprised to see how reluctant the local farmers are to bring their sick children to the hospital. As he investigates, he learns that the real reason is that the peasants in the area are kept in a state of virtual slavery. The Kalkaz was run essentially like a feudal fiefdom. The peasant farmers were all hardworking representatives of the socialist system who could not leave because their IDs, internal passports, were kept under lock and key by the village council. Only a small number of peasants, those drafted into military service, going away for professional or higher education, or marrying non-residents, were able to get their hands on an internal passport. The workdays of these peasants were carefully tracked and given that they were barely paid at a subsistence level, they could rarely afford to sacrifice a day to bring a sick family member to the hospital or to sit with an ailing child for any issue that didn't seem life-threatening. A missed workday meant the loss of food and a danger to the family's survival. As a result, he would see many children with major hearing loss, horrible dental disease, and dangerous respiratory infections. I have never ever seen such catastrophically dehydrated children as I did in Gradieshti and the surrounding villages. In textbooks, it's written that in cases of severe dehydration, more than 10% loss of body fluid, a child presents with systems such as lethargy, sunken eyes, fast and deep respiration. But the severely dehydrated children I encountered at least once a month in Gradieshti looked like small skeletons tightly covered with skin. It was so damn painful and traumatic to see the last sparks of life glimmering in these children. And some parents' struggle for daily survival was so extreme that they were forced to leave their critically ill child alone in the hospital. One of Cetus's most shocking discoveries, and another factor in the children's low general health, is the fact that in this area, citizens actually need a doctor's prescription to get milk from the store. 
Milk is available in very limited supply from a rather dirty and unsanitary kitchen. He discovers that this came about through a typical communist policy. Before the District Party Committee's enlightened plan of action, every Kolkhoznik family had been allowed to own one or two cows which supplied them with milk and other dairy products. The chairman of the Kolkhoz announced at a general meeting that all individual cows would become part of a common herd. The socialist bovines would be managed at a livestock farm where they would benefit from the latest scientific discoveries as well as a specially educated and trained staff led by a veterinarian. In this win-win situation, the owners would supposedly benefit even more by receiving a modest sum for their share of the calculated income of the collectivized cattle. Each family in Gradieshti would also receive two liters of collective herd milk each day from a special mobile milk cistern. After two months, unfortunately, the milk cistern simply did not show up one morning. The next day, they waited in vain again and returned home with empty jugs. Eventually, a group of villagers went to the village council. We know how important it is for you to get milk, but we are behind in state milk deliveries, and nobody can deny that this is the number one priority. At this point, their cows now their milk taken forever from them, the incredulous villagers still kept silent. Each standing there knew well from long years of experience that protesting was not only futile, but could be counterproductive and dangerous. And that's how, ta-da, forming a collective made a nonsensical shortage of one of the most common food items in Gradieshti. Tsisis makes an attempt at least to improve the standards of the milk kitchen through carrying out the formal inspection himself, but is unaware of that the attendants are well-connected in the local party. He creates a crisis for his boss when he sends a report of the kitchen's actual condition, including photos of the dirty rags used to clean the bowls and the dead flies floating in the milk, to the district party committee. He damages his and his boss's relationship with the local officials, which likely ends up as an influencing factor behind many of his later problems, but does manage to get the kitchen cleaned up a bit. Perhaps the most absurd moment in the book comes when a delegation of foreign professors and students arrives to observe life in the village. Naturally, the group is led by a leftist professor who helps add legitimacy to the scripted and carefully managed tour they're provided. When the visitors can't help but observe the primitive conditions, the town officials simply remark that they're looking at old facilities since new modern ones are currently under construction. When one of the visitors attempts to follow up with a hard question, the friendly professor stops him and threatens to get him banned from any future trips to the USSR if he continues. It's clear that nobody on either side is fooled. To deal with all these contradictions, Cesis shares one of his main coping mechanisms, a commonality we see in many of our stories. Despite the incessant grind of the Soviet propaganda machines, despite the terror and huge numbers of informers seemingly everywhere, people of our Soviet paradise always fought back through humor. Gradieshti was no different than any other place I lived. In the face of shortages, the heel of totalitarian rule, extreme poverty, and bureaucratic ineptitude, all we could do was mockingly make fun of the utter absurdity of the communist system. Often the first thing loyal friends did when they met was to tell new political jokes they had just heard. There was even a joke about the danger of telling a joke. Two men are placed in the same prison cell. One asks the other why he's in jail. For being too lazy, my friend. Lazy? Why? My next-door neighbor told me an anti-Soviet joke. It was late in the evening, so I decided to denounce him to the KGB first thing in the morning. But he reported me the same night. Here are some of my other favorite jokes from the book. A man explains to the Soviet authorities that he has to go to the United States to take care of his sick uncle. The representative of the authorities replies, Why would not your uncle come to the Soviet Union? You can take better care of him here. The man answers, I said that he's sick, not stupid. An ordinary woman walks into a Russian food store. Do you have any meat? she asks the grocer. No, we don't. 
What about milk? Comrade, we deal only with meat here. Across the street, there's a store where they have no milk. In a Soviet school, a teacher asks a student, who is your father? Stalin, the child eagerly replies. Who is your mother? The Soviet Union. And who do you want to become? An orphan. A man came home and found his wife in bed with a stranger. Furious, the man shouted, You good for nothing, look what you're spending your time for, while at the corner store they're selling eggs and they've only three boxes left. A KGB officer is walking in the park and he sees an old Jewish man reading a book. I am learning Hebrew so that when I die and get to heaven, I will be able to speak to Abraham and Moses. Hebrew is the language they speak in heaven. But what if when you die you go to hell? Russian, I already know. Though perhaps the biggest joke, if unintentional, comes when one of the local communist doctors tries to give a lecture on why the Soviet medical system is so superior to the West. As you know, last year with a delegation of leading rural physicians, I went for a week to Paris. Comrades, French hospitals are not better than our city hospitals, and their medicine is incredibly wasteful. They have a lot of technology, but it is too expensive. Waste, waste, waste. Their medical laboratories are unnecessarily large and stuffed with equipment for tests you never heard of. The cost for medical imaging is astronomical. And guess who pays for it? People like you and me. In France, they know nothing about our usual procedures, such as leeches. They consulted their smart books and had the nerve to tell me that these procedures were long outdated and replaced with more effective methods. Those French physicians are so infatuated with their technology that they use hundreds of antibiotics, while we need only ten. Our hospital room holds six or eight patients, sometimes more, while theirs will often have one or two sick people in a room. Patients in these separate rooms are isolated without a friend in the world, while the poor nurses are forced to run from one room to another. Many hospital rooms have individual washrooms. We have one washroom on each floor and nobody complains. Soviet medicine is the most advanced in the entire world. Well, the story has um, similar ways of dealing with uh, hard problems and hard circumstances when people find themselves in trouble, they look for all kinds of ways to either first they try solving the problem and when they can't solve it, they either have to to join with the people that are creating the problem or turn to humor. And in this case, you know, we can see a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was impressed in this memoir how, um, you know, the doctor had, uh, you know, he managed to maintain his sense of humor despite being among, you know, really tragic circumstances in a lot of ways. Yes, of course. And they, we, we already know how that works. And, and those systems, whenever somebody sees something wrong and they want to keep their job or their profession, they, every time they make noise or they point something out, they are at the risk of losing what they have or the very little they have. We saw the same thing happening and and he is pushing as much as, as he can without completely being kicked out. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, he, he fought that battle, for example, with the milk kitchen and uh, managed to get something changed there. But of course, the, the long-term costs to him were probably incalculable. That's probably one of the reasons why he eventually left the country altogether. He also covers a, a good point that we see whenever uh, governments fail, it's usually because they start getting filled with nepotism, too. 
they start, you know, covering for their buddies and giving them jobs, their family members. And then you end up with a bunch of people that are not capable of doing what they're supposed to be doing. And in most cases, it's just administrative work. They make life miserable for everyone else. But in, in his case, these were doctors and they were, they had people's lives in their hands. And, you know, unfortunately, nepotism, it spread around and that not just in administrative posts, but also doctors and could be, well, teachers and and on and on to other positions that could really be detrimental to the population. Yeah, I mean, in, in this in this book, we saw good examples where it goes sort of the top and the bottom of the uh, rungs, right? So that the top, there were the doctors who are, you know, mm-hmm. very important people who should be, you know, the, the most uh, educated people. Mm-hmm. in the country and they're just pushing people through with uh, nepotism there and then even at the bottom level in that milk kitchen right where the the woman mm-hmm. in the milk kitchen let you know flies die in the children's milk that they were handing out and again because they were well connected with the local communist officials they kept their jobs and there were basically no consequences for what they did and in many cases this is very familiar to me because um you know, we talk about uh, things falling apart, including hygiene issues and 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 malnutrition for the people. And that's a little bit about how I was growing up, uh, so down in Mexico, where you know you really we didn't have any toilet paper. It was all sticks and rocks. You know, we we take those things for granted, but these people have it a lot tougher than than they even know how tough they have it because they haven't seen anything better. So it's a it's a sad situation. I mean, we go through this story and it's a, it's a prime example of what happens when governments don't work, when they try to manage the population and control the population in a way that they start putting their own people in place so that they can control the other ones better that it's going to end up in a disaster like we've seen it every place yeah yeah and i think one one other aspect of that that i saw in this book and was one of the main reasons why i wanted to talk about uh, this book today even though it had a bunch of similar themes to a lot of the other things we've read is the situation of the uh, peasants out in the uh, farmlands Right. So on the one hand, the people yeah. who had good connections were able to get great jobs. You know, they could be a doctor, even if they're a moron. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the people who didn't have those connections could be assigned to really horrible jobs. And, you know, it was scary that the way, um, you know, the descriptions you read here of how the people were sort of over so overworked, they couldn't even bring their children to the hospital when they were sick. On top of that, they had no they had no ability to leave the town. Right. They were sort of trapped there by the government mm-hmm. they needed an internal passport to go anywhere you know and it's funny how all these people who advocate for socialism say oh well then everybody will be doing what they want and, and things will be better and nobody will be forced to do any work that they don't like but yet you know what we see here is in practice you know governments realize well wait a minute there's some hard jobs that nobody's volunteering for and under a socialist system you just say well let's force some people to do it yes and you can see it in the story that um, 
they're seeing it themselves that their lifestyle is very poor compared to others that are free. I mean, they're doing surgery with poor lighting and reusing the same instruments over and over again. That sort of thing, it's because the system's not working. There are no incentive to improve things. Oh, they, their only incentive is to do as they're told and keep their mouth shut. In fact, they become masters of inventing things and exaggerating how well things work in order to survive. It's not, it's not unheard of because that's how they survive themselves. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was funny how, uh, you know, there were the doctors were constantly required to make reports that everything was successful, uh, regardless of what was actually going on. Yeah, and being honest becomes a, a a liability for sure in a case like that. One of the things that I that I could see is that in our societies we rely sometimes on whistleblowers to bring up this horrible issues going on on the inside and the media to shed lights to bad things happening. Unfortunately, you know, as we hear on this story that uh, whistleblowers are really in great danger and media is pretty much non-existent. And in our case, in the West, we still rely on whistleblowers, but the media is pretty much now decided that it's better for them to join the government than to (laughs) become the eyes of the people. Yeah, yeah. And and it is scary how, you know, these all these big media outlets in the past at least were supposed to be doing investigative journalism and things like that are becoming more and more like mouthpieces. Yes, and it's pretty sad because we see what's happened before when you give all the power to government. Eventually, even those in charge began began to suffer the consequences. Yes, they have better services and better everything than the rest of the population, uh, the people in government. But eventually, they also, their relatives and other people start to suffer. And I don't know, you know, maybe that is just the price they're willing to pay to stay in power. Yeah, well, you know, it's the the whole, uh, the old saying that, you know, if you're making $50,000 a year and people around you are all making 100000 then you get really resentful. But if you're making 40000 and everyone around you is making 10000 you consider yourself rich. That's true. That is very true. So it seems like, in, at least in the story, they were even trying to um, run the cattle milking cows as, as a communist uh, endeavor <laughs> we're here we'll put in a little bit of milk from this cow and a little bit more on this one here and eventually we'll share it at the other end i don't know how that was going to improve the uh, the ultimate volume of milk available yeah it well, wasn't going to improve anything yeah i mean i think that milk story was really just sort of a, a classic example of the tragedy of the commons right like even back when we were hearing about uh, the pilgrims arriving in uh, it's now the u.s right remember that mm-hmm. story we did a while back where they yeah. at first they decided well we'll hold all the farmlands in common everybody lost the incentives to sort of individually put in the effort to make it succeed and things kind of fell apart 
And here we had a situation where everybody had their individual cow because they knew it was what was feeding their family. They would care for it, you know, feed it right, generate lots of milk, and then they'd be able to gain the benefits of that milk in the end. But now when they yeah. collectivized the cows, they took away all of that. They were taken to some big farm, probably given to some, you know, workers who got those jobs through nepotism and didn't really care about the cows, just generated enough milk for, you know, their immediate needs and to meet the bare minimum. And of course, the communist officials then took that milk for themselves when, they, when it was time to distribute. And as a result, you know, nobody had any incentive to improve production or even to keep it at the same level it was before. That is very true. And part of the story, he shares the time when people came to visit the town and look around. And they, obviously, some people are seeing that, hey, this doesn't look good. This is this is this is in dire straits here what's going on they start asking hard questions and there's usually in the in government uh there's usually someone who's keeping an eye on everybody else every time there's something like this and and their job is to shut them up and to or find a way to make sure that they never get invited again yeah yeah and that's also a common theme we've seen here right where Sort of, um, you know, every time someone from the West says, you know, well, we should look at what's happening in these socialist countries, you know, they're given some kind of canned tour, right, that sort of uh, gives them all the propaganda. And for some reason, even though it's not that hard to see, you know, that it's so much is artificial, they're just so, I guess, blinded by their, you know, ideals of communism that they've learned at their university that they're willing to look past what's in front of their eyes and continue spouting all the propaganda. And it's kind of sad. Exactly. We just need to stay vigilant and, and, and hope that people get involved and don't just give up because if we give up, a lot of times that's really what governments want. They want you to be passive and, and don't speak up, but we have to. And when somebody stands up for the right cause, we should not let them stand alone. We should ask to stand up so that they, that person knows that they're not alone. And and the people trying to punish them so that they know that, that the rest of the people are not going to go alone. This this uh, story really paints a, a clear picture of of a communist government that, that doesn't work. I really think this was a, a great story. I don't know where you find the stories, <laughs> Eric, but this was a, a great one, a great example of what happens in a totalitarian society. Anyway, there are many more moments of colorful village life, hilarious silliness, and medical horror for you to read in Cesus's memoir. Check out Communist Days through the link in our show notes at storiesofcommunism.com. And this has been your story of communism for today. <laughs>